welcome you here this morning to those who are online and those who are here with us in person. Glad that you're worshiping with us. If you're here and you happen to be a guest, if you're here for the very first time, there, there's an extra flap on that bulletin. If you would fill it out and tear it off and then put it in the box on the welcome table as you leave, that'd be great. We're just glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. I have a few things that I want to call to your attention. First of all, uh, welcome back, you ladies from uh, Haiti. Uh, it's good to see you. Where's Rhonda? Uh, there she is, hiding behind over there. Okay, and good to have you back. Uh, praise God. Uh, all in one piece, and they're able to be up and come to church this morning, so we're grateful, anxious to hear what God has done and what God is doing. So if you have a chance, you want to talk to them. Okay, ladies, raise your hand so everybody knows who you are. Come on. Higher. I can't see it, Jackie. All right, all right. So uh, have a chance. Okay, I'm supposed to dismiss the young people for uh, Generation Jesus, and that's all the young kids. And if you're the sixth through sixth grade through twelfth grade, if you'd like to find out what it's all about and explore it, you're dismissed at this time too. Okay, so uh, everybody should be out there ready to go if they're ready for that. Good deal. Also. I have uh, just a couple of other things. First of all, I want to remind you that there's a Get to Know Us lunch, which I don't know, maybe you've been around for a while and you've never come to one, but uh, this is kind of a way to kind of lay out for people who we are at Creekside, what our theological convictions are, what our practical ministry is, how the structure of the church is laid out and all that kind of stuff. So we just invite you to come. That's on October 24th, right after this service. And we'd encourage you to sign up at RSVP, so go to the website. If you have a bulletin on the back, email megan at creeksidedm.com and let her know if you're planning. We'll have free lunch, and then we'll be meeting for about an hour and a half to kind of go over some stuff. Love to have you join us. Also, I want to thank everybody who showed up yesterday for the clean-out day. And to those who were not here yesterday but who worked ahead of time, to help us decide what we needed to clean out, okay? So we got a lot of stuff hauled off, and as Ken said in the first service, it's kind of nice to see Bob Short swinging a sledgehammer, breaking up a couch so we could fit it into the dumpster, and, uh, you know, it's kind of one of these uh, experiences. So glad, glad that you all came out and appreciate all the work that went into that. The last thing I want to call to our attention is something that came out late on Friday, and that is an opportunity for us as a church. A week ago, we had a video presentation and video announcement that Katie was sharing with us ways that we can get involved with uh, the, the community and uh, particularly the refugee community. And this is an excellent way. Uh, the Urbandale Community Action Network uh, has a sign-up for they, they go into the community and they ask people to sign up for things that they need in preparation for winter and they match those needs with people who are willing to help. And so on our website and in the email that came out, there's an, a link for you. If you click on that link, it opens up and there's a sign up for us to help provide snow pants, winter boots, uh, mittens, hats, all kinds of stuff for the people in need. So I just want to encourage you to do that. Again, our heart is that we want to be part of reaching out into our local community. This is an excellent way for us to take part in that. So I just want to encourage you in that. And we'll come out with some more action steps, ways that we can get involved. I know that Katie mentioned that there's opportunities for us to have uh, mentoring relationships or just 
friendship relationships with people in the community that we can build relationships and explore ways to serve them as well. So that's one good way. Encourage you to sign up and check it out. And if you have questions, just email me or email Megan and we'll try to get you or you can talk to Katie too and we can get that going. Okay, thanks. Father, I thank you that we serve you, Lord. We serve a God who is mighty to save. And we serve a risen Savior. And I thank you, Father, for your word, for your patience, for your mercy, and for your goodness in our lives. I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law, from your word, that we might just be see our, our lives changed and transformed by the power of your spirit working in us and through us for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. I pray right now, Father, for our brothers and sisters who are still in Haiti from our church, who are ministering to the people there. I ask that you to give them rich encouragement, physical stamina and strength, and that you would work powerfully through them as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, Sarah is told that she's going to have a child in her old age. And she laughs at God or at the thought that he's going to do that. And God's response to Sarah is this. Nothing is impossible with God. And it's statements like that, true statements from the Word of God, that skeptics like to take and then formulate questions that they think will somehow disprove the reality of God or somehow make following Him and believing in Him ridiculous. Statements like, well, can God make a rock so big that He can't move it? Among the statements, we'll get to that later, but among the statements... And questions and theological debates that is most prominent, that's most important, that is essential for us to have the answer to, is whether or not there is an afterlife. Is there such a thing as a resurrection of the righteous to new life and the fear of judgment on the wicked? Which is what Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 29, that there would be a judgment, a raising of those to new life and a judgment on the wicked. The reality of the resurrection, the reality of an afterlife, is actually the topic, the subject of confrontation that we come to in the passage that we're looking at. It's the second confrontation with the religious leaders in Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and particularly verses 23 through verse 33. And you say, well, why is it important that we would know about this reality of the resurrection, whether it's real or not? Well, the reason I think that we need to know is because of our understanding of God and the doctrine of God, which theologians call orthodoxy, is necessary for us to understand our practice in life, our orthopraxy. You see, if we aren't straight on what we believe, we will not be straight on what, how we behave. If we aren't right in our convictions, we will not be upright in our conduct. It can't flow that way. 
So it's important for us to understand. See, the resurrection, uh, the, the reality, the, to deny it, if you deny the reality of the resurrection, what does it lead to? It leads to fatalism and a self-indulgent hedonism. Now, hedonism is just doing whatever feels good, okay? So this fatalism, well, just doesn't matter, you know, just live life and do whatever. That's what it leads to if you deny the resurrection, the reality that there is an afterlife. But the resurrection reality, if you believe that there is a reality called the resurrection, if you don't believe it, hey, why live for anything but for now? If you do believe it, then it impacts our understanding of eternity. It, it helps determine where we're going to spend eternity, and it matters how we live our earthly existence. If there's a reality of life beyond the grave, then it does matter for everybody. It impacts the, our eternal destiny and the earthly trajectory of our life, how we live life now. And the religious leaders in the time of Jesus tried as much as they could to turn the, the, the popular opinion of people against Jesus by somehow discrediting him in front of them by making it seem that his belief in the resurrection was somehow unscriptural and unbiblical. And therefore, they could maintain their authority and their power over the people rather than Jesus taking it away from them. They wanted to neutralize the threat that Jesus presented to them, and so they tried to discredit him with regard to the resurrection. But the outcome of this conflict, I think you need to importantly understand, has both eternal and earthly implications. So we need to know. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 23 through 33, because in this conflict between Jesus and the Sadducees, Second conflict on the same day that Jesus encountered unfolds in two acts that prove the reality of our belief in the resurrection, and that impacts both our eternal destiny and our earthly trajectory, where we live and how, how we live our lives. I'm going to read the text beginning with verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an off, offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. They neither marry, or you are mistaken, not, uh, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, he, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The confrontation unfolds in two acts. First of all, we see the, that our belief in the resurrection is disputed. It's challenged. It's confronted. And there are two factors to consider that I see in the text. First of all, the source of the dispute. Where is the argument coming from? Well, on that day, 
same day, you have to go back to the beginning of chapter 22, it was the same day that we saw it when we were in it last week, there was a confrontation with Jesus and the Pharisees. On the same day, in the temple, there's another confrontation. The Sadducees. Now, who are they? Well, they were among the upper crust of Jewish society, okay? These people were the well-to-do people. They were in charge, basically, of the temple, and they were the people that had a lot of sway in the Jewish ruling uh, group, the Sanhedrin. So they're very influential, very popular. Well, not necessarily popular, but they're powerful, okay? And so these are the people. And they were traditionally enemies of the Pharisees. The two didn't really like each other, but just like we saw last week, they joined together, uh, the Pharisees and Herodians. Now we see the, Pharise- the Sadducees uh, also coming along, joining with the Pharisees in opposition to a common enemy, Jesus. Now, their opposition was, first of all, practical. It was a practical consideration. Because if you looked at that, they were, their, their wealth, their position, and their power was contingent upon everything running smoothly in Rome. So as long as the Romans were in charge and things were running smoothly, then they had power, they had their position, and they had their influence, and they had their money. And so it was their primary objective to appease the Romans and to keep the peace and the status quo. And so Jesus rocked the boat, okay? So when Jesus comes along and the people come along and they say Jesus is the king, like they did in Matthew chapter 21, when he's riding in on the donkey, Hosanna, to the son of David, whoa, wait a second, this is rocking the boat because this got the, the radar up of the Romans. And so the, the Romans would be uh, thinking, wait a second, we can't have that. Uh, they were suspicious of what was going on. And it threatened, potentially, that the Sadducees would lose their position. So can't have that. Can't have that at all. And so we see that they, they were wanting to peep, keep the people under control. In, uh, in God, the Gospel of John chapter 11, verses 47 and 48, we read these words. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council meeting, and they were saying, what are we doing in regard to the fact that this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all the people will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take over both our place and our nation. So it wasn't just the Sadducees, it was the Pharisees and the scribes, and all these religious leaders were worried about their place and their position. Be a lot easier if Jesus was just out of the way for them, okay? Then there was a personal conviction. Remember, Sadducees are the ones in charge of the temple. What has Jesus just done in the temple? (laughs) He just ransacked the temple. I mean, Jesus just humiliated them. They're the ones who are in authority. He's, He's challenging their authority, and he's undermining their superiority. Whoa, they can't have that. So there was this personal conviction. And then their denial, which the Sadducees did, it says right there in verse 23, they denied the resurrection, right? So their denial of the resurrection was, guess what, in opposition of much of the Old Testament. We could go to Job, chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. We could go to Psalm, chapter 16, verses 8 to 11. Psalm chapter 68, Psalm chapter 73, verse 24, Psalm 110, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and argue a good case for the resurrection, the reality of life after death. So they were in opposition to the Old Testament. They were also in opposition to Jesus. 
Because Jesus had said, back in chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel, back in chapter 17 of Matthew's Gospel, the Son of Man will go up and he'll be delivered over to the scribes and Pharisees and they'll crucify him, he'll be buried, and he'll rise again the third day. So Jesus had said it on numerous occasions. And we could also go into John in chapter 5, 3 and, and 5. We could talk about it. And Jesus this perspective of the resurrection was also contrary to what most of the Jews believed. So the Sadducees were kind of on the out when it came to this resurrection idea. As Acts chapter 23, verse 8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so some of you heard this, right? In Sunday school, they were very sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So that's how I keep it straight. They were sad, you see, they didn't believe in the resurrection at all. And Jesus was a thorn in their flesh, so they thought, we'll just get rid of the guy. So they came to him, the text says in verse 23, and they came to him and questioned him. We just marginalize this guy in the, in the, in the eyes of the multitudes by proving that his idea about a resurrection is unbiblical, and therefore he's a liar, and so following him would be ludicrous. And then the people will not follow Jesus, and they'll accept and follow us, and they will, everything will be fine. Everything will be wonderful. But isn't that the same logic that's used today? We just get rid of the reality of a resurrection. We get the reality of an afterlife. get the reality of, you know, resurrection of the righteous to life and of fear of judgment to the wicked, and everything will be fine. We should just eat, drink, and be merry, right? For tomorrow we die. This is the mantra of the world and the culture we live in. Just live for today. Go for the gusto. It's, 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 it's all good. Just take what you can. The most vile sin in this scenario then becomes justifiable. If there is no resurrection, if there is no life after death, there's no judgment, there's no reward for the righteous, then just do whatever you want. That's what the world says. And the most vile sins become justifiable. That's why in this culture, the value of an unborn human is very, very low in the, in the minds of the world, in the minds of the culture. And I would submit to you that this can be traced back, among other reasons to the unbiblical idea that there is no resurrection. It's not just that there's no resurrection that leads to the idea of trivializing human existence in the womb, but it is one of many rejections of Christian truth that leads to it. Open disregard for human life, uh, open, open disregard for, for an unborn life without is, is virtually encouraged if you deny that there is a life after death. And that you'll be punished if you sin against God. That the righteous will end. So it's our selfish and hedonistic culture. Fuels sinful conduct in light of denying that there is really life after death. Now, how so? I'm just going to give you a couple of ideas. Uh, part of it has to do with the idea of moral relativism. That's just a fancy word of saying that you decide what's right for you and I'll decide what's right for me. We reject this moral relativism rejects any idea of an objective truth and standards based in God's Word. So you just decide what, what's right for you, and I'll decide what's right for me. 
This is the culture that we live in. And this is the idea, this is the mentality that leads to actual racism. The sin of partiality as it's perpetrated in critical race theory. This is the kind of mentality that actually uh, perpetuates the idea that it's okay for the government to steal, it's okay for the government to have tyranny over people. This is the kind of mentality that you do what's right, I'll do what's right, is the kind of mentality that leads to the idea that you can decide what gender you are regardless of what's really true based on God's word. Moral relativism. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. That's not what the scripture says, but that's what the world says. Then there's humanism. Humanism says that basically everybody's pretty good. We start with that premise that everybody's good. Now, I would tell you that the premise that everybody's good is the basis of socialism, communism, and also the basis of critical theory. That everybody's good. Because you have to trust everybody. You have to trust these people to do the right thing. And so that's where we're at as a culture. That's the, the source of the debate. Now let's look at the substance of the dispute. They say to him, teacher, just like with the Pharisees who sent their little minions up to, up to Jesus, as we looked at last week, this is nothing other than uh, kind of a vain attempt at flattery, okay? Mocking. It's, a, it's kind of they're trying to flatter Jesus. They don't really mean it. They don't really see him as a teacher. Their opposition to the resurrection is theological because the Sadducees held that the first five books of the law for the Hebrew, that would be the Torah, that, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what was authoritative. You could only listen to the first five books of the law. Everything else you didn't have to listen to. And they would try to prove from this book, not they, they didn't see anywhere in there evidence for the resurrection. In fact, they saw that there was evidence to disprove it. And so that's where they went. That was their attempt. So what do they do? They come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, verse 24, Moses said, see, there you go, Moses. It's in the first five books of the law. Here's what Moses said. And so then they quote Deuteronomy 25.5 and they appeal to the law of leveret marriage and it's explained for you there in the text. Guy marries a woman. They don't have any children. He dies. His brother has to take over to raise up a child to him. That didn't happen. So this happened seven times. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Oh, there you go. This was, this was the law of leveret marriage. Some of you remember the book of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz. This was the Extended, it, although it didn't even extend to his brother, it extended to some more distant relative so that the, the woman raise up a son and actually take care of her because this was the day before you had social networks. Your children took care of you in old age. So that was the, that was the idea. And so we have it. And the Sadducees then concocted this hypothetical riddle, <laughs> this, this dilemma that they, they gave to Jesus. There, this was there. Can God make a rock so big he can't move it? Okay. And so they came up with this dilemma in which the seven men married. And, and it says, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be? And they were convinced that this was an unanswerable dilemma that would somehow disprove any idea of a resurrection, an afterlife. It just couldn't happen because of this logically inconsistent uh, way this would be. Theirs wasn't sincere inquiry. They tried to trap Jesus. 
And Jesus had spoke of the resurrection. He spoke of his own resurrection. Jesus spoke of the resurrection of other people. Jesus spoke of eternal life. So it's kind of like they said, well, if God is all-powerful and God is good, then how come we had a derecho uh, last summer? So either God is not all-powerful because he didn't keep it from happening, or God is not all-good because he did let it happen. There again, nothing that happens defies either God's goodness or his greatness. But grasping this requires a fuller understanding of God's word and his character than a simplistic riddle. In the same way, the resurrection is not something you can discredit by appealing to the law of leveret marriage. And Jesus goes on to expound this. The Sadducees and all who deny that there's a resurrection, they just don't, they, they don't have that understanding. And Jesus tries to fill them in on their understanding and lighten the darkness. And that's where the belief being debated turns into the belief being defended in verses 29 through 33. And the, the, the defense becomes a three-step process. And first of all, there's the, the fearless condemnation, which I, I, I just, I'm amused at Jesus. In verse 29, but Jesus answered and he said to them, you're wrong. I'm just straight up. You messed up, you know. Uh, who tells the Sadducees they're wrong? Who tells the Pharisees? Jesus does. Because he shoots straight. Isn't that interesting? That's what the Pharisees said. They came to him and said, oh, teacher, we know you speak the law of truth and that you don't defer to anyone. And actually what he does is he proves that he is the one who speaks truth and he doesn't defer to anyone. You are mistaken. So he declared their ignorance. <laughs> You're mistaken. You're not living in reality. Isn't it interesting? Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. It's interesting to me. Okay, It doesn't have to be interesting to you. It's interesting to me that people who, who defend the separation of the church and state based on the Establishment Clause and the Constitution are wrong. Uh, because separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. And most of you know this, but it's in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Church in which Thomas Jefferson says not that the church should not be involved in the state, but that the state should not be involved in the church. They're wrong. Then Jesus goes on to describe their ignorance. You don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. Two reasons you're mistaken. And he deals with the last one first. Okay? He deals with they don't understand the power of God first. And this is the factual correction that he makes to them. The factual correction of those who doubt our belief in the resurrection is in verse 30. Four, four gives indication of the first reason. And then he says, in the resurrection, which is Jesus' confident assertion of what they categorically deny. They've said there's no resurrection. They're making a fabricated argument about the, against the resurrection. And Jesus is for in the resurrection. So he's affirming what they deny. There is a resurrection. And he articulated the difference in the resurrected life. You see, you're wrong because you don't understand the power of God. The power of God is such that in the resurrection, we're not given in marriage. or, or uh, There's no single 
relationship that is of top priority other than our relationship with God. So in the resurrection, there's no marriage, there's no given in marriage. In fact, we're like angels, which you have to understand, the Sadducees didn't believe in them either. So, so we're like angels. And so what God does is he transforms our life in the resurrection so that our, uh, there's, there's a, a love for other people that surpasses that of our love in this world. So even our love with our, our spouse, if you're married, in the resurrected life, we love them more than we do when we're married here. And we love other people more than we do when we're married here. And we love God more than we do when we're married here. So God transforms us in the resurrection to a, a singleness that is, enables a love that surpasses that of our married relationship here and our other relationships here. And so they err not knowing the power of God. The whole foundation upon which they built their argument just crumbles right before them. Now our, our friends... Our church family who just got back from Haiti uh, can probably attest to this. But in Haiti, uh, they, they, they make concrete blocks out of uh, inferior concrete. Okay, They mix it on the ground and uh, with some gravel from the, the riverbed and from some sand and Portland cement. And they mix it up into, and they make blocks. And then they build these blocks to be the foundation of their homes. And then they pour slabs of concrete, thick concrete, to each layer. And when the earthquake comes, the poorly formed concrete blocks crumbles under the weight of the concrete slabs. Well, the poorly formed argument of the Sadducees crumbles under the weight of the power of God to raise the dead to new life and to transform our existence to be such that our love for others becomes greater than our love for them here. And so they err. They don't understand it. And so next, Jesus attacks their ignorance of Scripture. <laughs> don't know the power of God. You don't know, but regarding the resurrection, is, is what he says in verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, um, he's introducing the Mosaic defense. But he introduces a verse that directly relates to the resurrection, whereas they had used a verse that didn't really have anything to do with the resurrection. It was an argument uh, kind of out of thin air. But Jesus says no. You know, some people, Christians, say they're Christians, and they, they, they defend their selfish, hedonistic, self-indulgent activity based on, well, you know, God wants me happy. You know, you hear these stories about um, uh, immorality and, and things in, in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, I just know that, I just know God wants me happy. Where does it say in the Bible that God's primary goal for us as believers is to be happy? The Word of God says God's will for our life is for us to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. So we can try to justify what we want, and Jesus says, no. You guys want to use this lever at marriage saying, no, I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture. In the book of Moses... From the book you hold to be highest esteem, and we're going to look at it, what it says. Have you not read? I love it. Have you, you experts in the Old Testament law of Moses, have you not read what God's word says in the book of Moses? Exodus. 
It's kind of like you're teaching Sunday school. And you say, you know, there's really, I, I just really don't think there's any verses in the Bible that talk about eternal life. And some little kid raises his hand, well, well teacher, what about John 3.16? Oh, yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is the John 3.16 moment for the Sadducees. Okay? And Jesus says, have you not read that which God has spoken to you? Regarding the resurrection of the dead, nothing short of the law would do it. So what does Jesus do? He points them to the law. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And he quotes it in verse 32. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The see, their argument wasn't with Jesus. Their argument was with God. Interestingly enough, when God appeared to Moses... In the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been gone, had been dead for a long time. And what does this say? They're still alive. And they're still in a relationship with God. Because he says, I am. Not that I was, I am. This is a perpetual present. And they're still in relationship with God. Just like every believer who has died from, from history past until now, awaiting their resurrection to be with God in their glorified body. And Jesus is saying, this is it. Sean O'Donnell puts it this way. At the heart of the covenant is promise is the promise of a real, living, and lasting relationship between Yahweh and his people. See, the hope of resurrection life with God is, is driven home by Jesus' explanation. If you look at the end of verse 32, he says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's who God is. <laughs> Mic drop. Boom. Implicit in God's covenant promise of salvation to the patriarchs and to everyone who believes after them is the assurance of resurrection. In fact, Jesus is quoted in Luke chapter 20. You can write this down and look it up later. But in Luke chapter 20, verse 37, Jesus says this to the Sadducees, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. You want Moses? I give you Moses. You know, forget Job. Forget David in the Psalms. Forget Daniel. Forget Isaiah. Isaiah 26. I'll show you Moses. And that's where it is. And so then we come to the fitting conclusion from those who heard the explanation. How did the multitudes respond? We see it there in verse 33. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Remember last week? They marveled at Jesus' teaching. He had succinctly, precisely, strategically taken them to the book of Moses in Exodus, and he had expounded the reality of a resurrection. And they went, wow. Now, that doesn't mean that they all jumped up and down and, and went down the aisle and, and said, okay, Jesus, will follow you. Uh, maybe some did, but maybe some didn't. But they were blown away by his accuracy. And then we see the religious leaders. How did they respond? Well, it's not in this text. But if we went to the parallel in Luke chapter 20, and I think we have it, hopefully I, I gave it to him. Yeah, some of the scribes, answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. He's like, well, that's, that's pretty good. For they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. 
silenced. Then he silenced the Pharisees and the Herodians. Then in the second confrontation, he silences the Sadducees and the scribes and the people who were there. Obviously, it wasn't just the Sadducees who were listening because it's in the temple. He silenced them. They had been schooled, but it doesn't mean their heart had been changed. And so I, I ask you today, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? And my answer is no. Because God never does anything that's inconsistent with who he is and his character. He's not capitulating to my little riddles. He's God. Now, that takes faith. Just like it takes faith to understand that Jesus taught that there is a resurrection. You have to accept that Moses, what Moses said in Exodus is true. There is some faith involved in it. Yes, there's no doubt about that. But it's impossible for God to act in an inconsistent way with his character, with his word, and with his will. So, we can ask all these questions, but God is God. So, he's not making things bigger than he can move because he's God. Not to like that answer, but that's the answer. And then, so I say, are you astonished with Jesus, with the multitudes, and say, wow. He just, he just like surgically goes in there and cuts out all of the garbage and gives us what's true. This is just one of many examples. It's not the ultimate example, only example. It's one of many that proves he is who he said he was. You see, because of what Jesus has done, because there is a resurrection, we can live with God in heaven for eternity, apart from being condemned to hell for eternity. There is an afterlife, Jesus said, and we can escape judgment because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, he says that, that Christ rose from the dead, the first fruits of those who have been rescued. And then he says, if we believe, we will be raised too. 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 20 and 22. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's what I asked you this morning. Do you believe this? If you don't, the Bible says there is destruction that awaits you. If you do, the Bible says there is heaven and glory and eternal life that awaits you. You don't have to believe either of that. But that's what the Bible says. So you've got to confront God, not me. This is what God says, and my prayer would be that you would accept it. The Bible says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, 58. There is a resurrection. And by God's grace, we can be part of that resurrection to new life if we're trusting in Jesus. So if you're not, I invite you to do that today. To turn from your sin and and repent and trust in what Jesus did on the cross as the payment the sin for the sins that you deserve so that you can be delivered from eternal damnation and enjoy eternal glorification with God. Now, if you know Jesus, then the question is, are we astonished enough to adore him? First of all, are we astonished enough to accept him as our Savior? And secondly, are we astonished enough to adore him in our worship throughout each and every day? Romans chapter 6, um, Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism and into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we believe that if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. <laughs> yeah. Knowing this, that our old self has been crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Now get this. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. I don't have to serve sin. And my question for you is, where do you, where do I need this resurrection power in my life? And I was thinking about that. I need God's resurrection power to be bold in my witness for him. I need God's resurrection power to be the husband and father God has called me to be. I need his resurrection power to forgive those who sin against me. I need his resurrection power to pray for my enemies. I need his resurrection power to see that my sin is just as reprehensible and just as offensive as yours. Instead of looking down my nose at at other people who sin, I need to see the sin in my own life and repent of it and be gracious and merciful and kind and forgiving and not critical and judgmental and proud. I need his resurrection power. And he says he'll give it to me. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Resurrection life. That I might walk in newness of life. That I'm no longer a slave to sin, but that I can triumph over it. Not because of me, but because of his power within me. And then finally, he says, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then not only can we live, walk uprightly, but we can live in hope in the midst of difficulty. And I know we have folks in our body who are struggling with struggles and difficulties, but God says, and we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 6, as blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. I don't know about you, when I look around the world, I look around my life, I see people in my, in my, that I love, there's a lot of distress and a lot of various trials. But the Word of God, because there is a resurrection, gives us hope in the midst of losing loved ones, hope in the midst of illness, hope in the midst of hopeless world events because we serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. Above him, there is no other. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you know what Jesus did? A few days from here, (laughs) he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And he validated, he proved that he actually did pay the debt for sin so that all who believe would be raised again to new life in him. He proved it. Now, and let me tell you what. There's a lot of evidence to validate the reality of the resurrection. So, yeah, you have to believe it. You have to have faith. And, you know, if our minds are blinded by spiritual darkness and we don't believe it, 
that, that, that can be true, but it's not because there's a lack of evidence. <clears throat> it's because we're ignoring the evidence. And so as we, as we take a piece of bread, well, I'm not sure I'd even call what we take as bread, uh, as we take this wafer and we take the juice, what we're doing is we're reminded of what Christ has done, his body broken and his blood shed, and we acknowledge the victory. Victory in Jesus over sin and death and the grave. And so there's a time for somber reflection because he did it for undeserving sinners like us. And there's a time for celebration because we're blessed to partake in it and enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, as we take a few moments to reflect on the reality of the resurrection and what that means, that there is life beyond the grave, uh, new life for those who are righteous because they're trusting in Christ and the fear of judgment for those who aren't. I pray that your spirit would help us to see sin that needs to be confessed, repented of, and turned from before we take and celebrate what you've done for us. If there's anyone listening who's never put their faith or their trust in Christ, I pray that you'd open their eyes, that your spirit would move them to see their need to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. I can't do it. Their parents can't do it. Their grandparents can't do it. Their spouses can't do it. But you can do it, Lord. You are mighty to save. And I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see the wonderful truths from your law. We might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ and realize that we want to spend eternity with you and want to live with purpose now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.